A reading from the prophet Habakkuk, the third chapter. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the seas when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. O Lord, have mercy on us. Imagine a house that is in shambles house that is in such disrepair that really no amount of gutting and building it up from the studs will save it. The studs are rotten, there's mold everywhere, the foundation is crumbling, the earth is giving way underneath the foundation. Imagine a house like that. When we, people, look at things in this world, we're always looking for something to salvage, something that's worthwhile. The trouble is when we encounter something like that, a house that is in complete disrepair, the best we can do is to tear it down and start anew. When we, people, look at things in this world, 
we look for something to salvage. And if there is nothing there to salvage, we move on. That is one of the key differences between people and God. One of the key differences between God's creatures and him. Between the glory of the Lord and the glory that is tarnished in man. One of the key differences is that when God looks at things, he does not look for something to salvage. When there is nothing there worth salvaging, God creates something beautiful. God does not look for lovely things, but he makes lovely things. When God looks at the world in disrepair, in chaos, and disorder, even while he is imagining and knowing what needs to be done to wash this world clean, he sees you and me. Not lovely, not beautiful, not holy, not good, not salvageable. And he chooses us. He calls us and saves us. We're like a rotten wall standing there that he decided not to knock down. A wall that no one would look at and no one could save, but he has plans to build again. He has plans for something new, plans to save and not to destroy. That is the key difference between us and God. We always look for lovely things. God doesn't bother looking for lovely things. He creates them. He makes them where they cannot be found. It's helpful for a moment just to review where we've been in the book of Habakkuk. Remember, Habakkuk cried out, How long, O Lord, how long will we suffer from the unfaithfulness of our people? How long will we suffer at the hands of our enemies? How long will this go on? How long will we cry out and you won't save us? And God answered him. God gave him an answer that was not pleasant or comfortable. It was an answer of more suffering, of greater distress. I'll send another army, a bigger army, a worse army. And yes, they will drive out your oppressors, but they will also oppress you. What kind of an answer was that? God means good for his people and everything that he does, even if it appears unhelpful, even if it appears troubling, even if it appears evil, it is good. Because God means it for good, and it is especially good in this way. That everything God does is meant to build us up in faith. To increase our trust in him. To tune our ears to his promises. So that we will never rely on our hopes of salvaging this world or ourselves. But so that instead we will hope in him. So that we will put our trust in him. So that when the earth crumbles, when the earth fails, we can stand knowing that he has chosen us. That's where we pick up in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. God has given his answer to Habakkuk. And God has told Habakkuk that the righteous, the righteous, shall live by faith. The wicked will receive their due, and so will the righteous. But not because of their righteousness, they will receive their due because of the promises that God has given That's where we pick up with Habakkuk's prayer at the end of chapter 3 here, at the end of the book in chapter 3. And the thing I want you to take away from this prayer is this. The goal of the Christian life, the goal of our worship, the goal of our study of the scriptures, of our discipline in the church, the goal of all of this is to get to this point where we can pray like this with Habakkuk. Where we can pray 
Though everything falls away, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on its vines, though everything should be taken away from me, yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will rejoice and take joy in the God of my salvation. That is the goal, to be able to pray this prayer like Habakkuk. But listen to how Habakkuk gets there. It's a long journey from the beginning of this prayer to the end. And it starts with an acknowledgement of who God is. I have heard the report of you, O Lord. I have seen it with my own eyes. I have seen what you have done to this world. I have seen how you have given this world what it deserves. Of course, the nation of Israel. Of course, God's people, the Hebrews, deserve what was given to them. They were unfaithful. Whether it was the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Babylonians, of course, they deserved God's wrath. And they had seen it. And yet Habakkuk prays this all-important prayer, verse 2, the last line of verse 2, in wrath, he says, In your wrath, O Lord, remember mercy. Remember mercy. It's not that Habakkuk can lay claim to any mercy that he imagines on his own, as though God owes him something. In fact, that's not in the character of mercy. It is not something that is owed at all. The only reason Habakkuk can pray for mercy in the midst of God's wrath is because it has been promised to him because he has been chosen, and God's people have been chosen to receive mercy. Think back to the Exodus as God's people are called out of Egypt, and that last and most dreadful plague is to fall on the land where the firstborn of every man and every woman and every beast will be destroyed as the angel of death sweeps through the land. What reason do the people of Israel have to believe that God will be merciful to them? It's not because they've done some good work by painting the blood of that Passover lamb on the doorposts and lintels of their houses. That's not why they will be spared. Why can they have any confidence that that angel of death will not visit their homes? It is because God has promised mercy to them. That's how they can say, in the midst of wrath, remember mercy, remember your promises. It is only by the promises of God, by his voice crying out to you and me who are dead in our trespasses and sins and offering us life and salvation. That is the only reason why we can hope. And that is the prayer that matters most. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy. Remember your mercy. Remember your mercy. Remember your mercy, especially as Habakkuk looks at all of the things that God has done. You heard this litany of terrors that God has wrought on the earth. And that is what Habakkuk is doing. He is recognizing that God is capable of terrible things. That he is a God who is dangerous. A God who is not safe. A God who can and will destroy. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? The earth is trembling. The mountains are writhing. Was your wrath against them? Who was your wrath against? It was against us. It was against the people, the creatures, the sinful humans in this world who deserved nothing but punishment and death. Habakkuk acknowledges that God has done terrible things, terrible things to the wicked. Not terrible in a moral sense, not terribly bad, but terrible in the fact that they induce terror in those on whom they are sent. It's terror that makes Habakkuk Tremble. It should make every living soul tremble. It makes the mountains tremble. God's wrath in his righteousness. But notice this. If you have your reading handy, this is a key turning point in the lesson. Right in the middle of that middle column, as we move through verse 12 into verse 13, pay attention to this. You marched through the earth, 
in fury. Verse 12, you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. Why is God, why is God so terrible to the wicked? Why is he threshing the nations in anger? Why does he do all of those things? Not simply because he somehow delights in the destruction of the wicked. Why does he do all of those things? It is for the salvation of his people. It is because by bringing an end to wickedness, he is delivering salvation to his people. When God floods the world and saves Noah and his family, the flood is to preserve Noah and his family from wickedness. When God marches through and destroys the enemies of God's people, as he brings plagues on them and terrors and makes the mountains tremble, it is because he wants to bring salvation to his people. God's no to the wickedness of this world, his unwillingness to let it stand, his unwillingness to let it endure, his no to all of that is his yes to you and to me, to the people that he has chosen. His salvation means something. His mercy means something because he is willing to deliver punishment to those whom he has not chosen, to those who have not heard his call and not received it. Because he is a jealous God, that is why his terror is our mercy. That is why his terror brings salvation, because he cares about what happens to you and to me. Habakkuk trembles. And every person should, at the sound of God's voice, at the sound of his power in the world, everyone should tremble. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. That does not sound like the petition, the prayer of somebody who is happy or comfortable. That sounds like the prayer of someone who has entered into the presence of Almighty God. Yet, he says, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Habakkuk knows that trouble is coming, and he knows that that trouble is meant for his salvation. Think to another Old Testament story that rings of all of these themes. Think of Abraham, whom God has called to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the son whom he loved, the son of promise, the hope for the future, the one in whom all nations of the world would be blessed. Think about that. As God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, imagine how Abraham felt. Imagine how he trembled in his bones, how his legs trembled beneath him, how rottenness entered his bones as he lifted the knife to kill his own son. How could he do that? How could he do that? Because he had the same faith that Habakkuk had. He had received the same promises that God's people had received. I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Abraham would wait quietly for God to fulfill the promises that he had delivered, the promises that were sure, the promises that could stand up even in the face of impossibility and death. Abraham believed that though his son Isaac were dead, that though his son Isaac were dead by his own hand, God could and would raise him from the dead, that the grave could not hold him that the grave could not stop God's promises, that this trouble, which he could see coming upon him, was meant for his salvation because he trusted in God, because he had received God's promises. You and I, we, are people of promise. Our lives hang on the promises of God. Otherwise, like everyone else in the world, we would look at trouble 
we would look at the things that happen in this world, the things that are hopeless and full of despair, and we would give up. We would have no hope. We would see this world as unsalvageable, and that would be it. That would be the end of the story. But God has something better in mind. From the beginning, he made this promise. There will come a seed from the woman who will crush the serpent's head. That is what this entire season of Advent is all about. It is about seeing how God has kept that promise from beginning to end. How though he took his time, in the fullness of time he did send his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law so that he may redeem you and me, to redeem us from sin and death. This is where we want to be. At the end of Habakkuk, praying with Habakkuk these words of those last three verses. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet, yet then I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's where we want to be. Where we can look at the trouble of this world, the trouble of our lives, the trouble of sin and death, the trouble that God sends on us to discipline and chasten us. We can look at it and say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That is why we celebrate Christmas year after year. What is your reason for rejoicing? It is this, that God sent his son to be born in the form of a humble servant, to be laid in a manger, to grow up and die for you. That is why we celebrate Christmas year after year. That is why we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday of the year, without fail, week after week, so that you may not forget, so that you may not forget that you have a reason to rejoice, that death and the grave cannot take away from you, much less all of the troubles of this world. You have a reason to rejoice. That is why we daily in contrition and repentance, die to sin and live to Christ, returning again to our baptism, returning again to the promises that were made to you by water and with God's word. You are his beloved child. Though the mountains tremble and the earth quake, though everything be taken away from you, though the world fall to pieces in the worst way imaginable, though any of that happen, you have reason to rejoice because you have a God who is a God of salvation. A God who makes and keeps promises. He has never once lied or deceived anyone. He has never once failed to do what he said he would. And the proof is here, in this place, where he offers us again and again the body and blood of Jesus, the same body and blood that were given on the cross, given and shed for you. Where he offers us again and again his precious words of forgiveness, life, and salvation. So come again. Return again and again. Hear again and again of these promises, these promises that hold everything together. Learn, like Habakkuk, to pray in this way. Rejoice in the Lord. Take joy in the God of your salvation. To him alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.